You know, one of the most exciting things about working with Gun.io is I get to work with some of the most important consumer brands and fitness brands and enterprise brands. And what you find is that they're all looking for the very best talent and they're competing for it. And one thing I tell clients all the time is that, hey, you know, if you can develop um, the mindset to, to hire remote freelance engineers, what you're going to find is that it opens up the pool of available talent because you're not going to have to fight over the same group of FTEs from all the other companies in your space. And so now what we can do is bring you a cohort of people that other companies aren't competing with you against. And it's really a competitive advantage to take stock of that and find some excellent people you can bring on board. This is the Frontier Podcast powered by Gun.io, the engineer's choice for engineering talent. If you like what you hear, rate, review, and subscribe, and follow us on Twitter at The Frontier Pod. Hey, Marco, great to have you on, man. Thanks for joining. Hey, thanks, Latch. Thanks for the opportunity. Could you give a couple minute intro, you know, yourself, your work? I know you have an interesting story. I would like to get the audience to get to know you a little bit. Sounds good. Yeah. Uh, my name is Marco Paladino. I'm the CTO and co-founder of Kong. And before being the CTO and founder and co-founder of Kong, I was the co-founder of another company called Mashape. So I did Mashape for a while, for a few years. Then we had to pivot the organization into a different product, into a different direction. You know, that happens all the time. And so mm-hmm. Kong was the result of that pivot. And since then, talk, Kong took off. And so uh, we're now building the company and the business. All right. Well, a lot to unpack there. So yeah, talk about like the arrival at Pivot. Well, and you know, talk about for like you talk about off mic that you know, you, building company, you know, different country, raising money, you know, sort of now you're in San Francisco. There's got to be a story there. I mean, that's it's not like a thing that everybody does. Like what what was that like? You know, walk walk through just getting there. It's a very long story. Uh, it starts 10 years ago. You know, Kong was released in 2015, but I've been hearing this in San Francisco in the United States since uh, 2009, 2010. And everybody asks me, okay, but wait a second. If Kong was born in 2015, what did you do the prior five years to that? Um, and the reality is that, you know, me and my co-founder were Italians. So we're immigrants. We moved to San Francisco to start Mashape. And like... Every immigrant, we had to deal with the bureaucracy of visas, being able to stay here and, you know, being a little bit outsiders. And so building a network was very important from us. And all of these things require a long time. And so finally, in 2012, we were able to release Mashape, uh, the API marketplace, which ended up being the largest API marketplace in the world. And, um, and we kept improving Mashape until 2015, when basically we looked at each other and we realized that the product was great. There was lots of users coming in on the platform, but the business model was flawed. In short, we were making no money whatsoever, which, as you know, it's kind of a problem when you're trying to build a business and you raise money for building the business and so on. And so in 2015, we decided, okay, this is not going anywhere. We are running out of money. We have to find something else to do. And, you know, as an immigrant, um, I felt that it was a very hard for me and for my co-founder to kind of give up and start something new, right? Because ideally, after five years trying to build something and doesn't work, you know, you you know, people just take some time off and they you know think carefully about what to build next, and then they just go ahead and do it. 
we couldn't do that because our visas are tied to the organizations. So basically we cannot give up, right? And so we decided, okay, we have to, to do something here. How about we take our technology in the marketplace? The things that were that was running on our server that nobody could access standalone, how about we take that and we open source it? And that was in 2015 when containers were out, microservices were a thing, Kubernetes was already out and so on. And so we took our technology, this API platform that was running all of these requests in the marketplace, and we decided to make it available on GitHub for everybody to download and use. And since 2015, Kong found really a good niche in the market, a good product market fit, and um, and it just took off from there. It first took off in the open source space, lots of downloads, lots of people, lots of contributors. And then it took off in the enterprise space. So it's open core. We have uh, like Elasticsearch, like Mongo. We have an, an enterprise version of Kong. And so enterprise organizations that perhaps start with the open source version, they can then upgrade to the enterprise version if they, if they need enterprise features. And so, you know, since then we grew not only the open source adoption, but the enterprise business as well. So it's been quite a, quite a journey. And to, to be at this point, it basically took 10 years. Yeah, uh, it's an overnight success, right? Yeah, so. right. <laughs> That's what they always say, right? Um, yeah, I mean, I, and that that journey that you discovered organically, were you able to draw off the experience of other open source companies who kind of discovered that you know open core, you know, but then sell the sell the the ecosystem of of enterprise tools around? I mean, you know, obviously, like. I mean, everybody could point to Red Hat as like you're sort of the the first company that probably did that, you know, really well. Who were the the corollaries or the you know the other companies that you looked to to try to to get your head around that? Because that, that's a big leap to pivot there. I mean, you are building an entirely different organization. That's so I just wonder what you think about there. You're, you're right. I mean, before when we in 2015 when we open source Kong, there weren't many examples of open source or open core companies, you know, creating a great business. I mean, there was Red Hat, like you say, but that was kind of a one-off, right? And there was uh, there were some new up-and-comers like Elasticsearch, Elastic, Confluent, Kafka, um, and so on. You know, something happened in 2014, 2013 in the industry, and that is the importance of open source as an enabler to a new way of building software. When we're looking at microservices, when we look at Docker, when we look at Kubernetes, when we look at you know all of the CNCF foundation and the landscape, we notice that the majority of those projects of those logos are available as an open source product. Open source became the baseline for this innovation. And the reason for that is that developers within the organizations, which used to develop software in a top-down way from a, you know, a top-down uh, motion that came from the directors, from the central IT perhaps, have broken their chains, so to speak. And now they are picking the right technologies for their products and they're pushing them in production themselves. It's a bottom-up disruption. It's a bottom-up adoption. And when we look at ecosystems like CNCF, what really that is, it's a self-service ecosystem that developers working in teams close to the end customer that I have to create products, I have to deliver business value today. Those are products that uh, open source projects that these developers can just pick and choose and deploy in production 
by themselves. And so this fundamentally really changed the way software is built because the center of excellence, which used to be this platform team, this central IT team, it's still there. But now they are playing catch up. They're catching up to all the decisions the teams have made in the actual products. It's the other way around. It's bottom-up disruption. Sure, yeah. And you have this sort of organizing combination of your DevOps, you know, tool chain types of uh, efficiency mechanisms to make development work better because it's been so democratized. There's like, you know, sort of like, different centralization then you got your product functions which are you know organized around you know sort of customer and develop like what are you going to build that people will actually pay for and you're right it kind of flipped the the basis of where the choices and autonomy you know are kind of coming from and organizations need to reimagine you know how they organize that i guess is the the really way to put it there um what are you know, it's, it's the kind of thing where I think a lot of people feel good about this approach and business model. It's probably not as easy to do as, you know, you would hope because you only see the successful cases. So, you know, what advice would you have there for anyone who is maybe setting out and saying, hey, that's our business model? Because I think it's a thing you can step into because you, you know, sort of, necessity of them is the mother of invention, right? You know, uh, but without having had that pivot experience, you, you maybe wouldn't have done the things that you did. You know, can you unpack that a little bit? Yeah. So in 2015, when we opened source Kong, all of this was already happening since a year or two, right? So we thought open source can be much bigger than what it used to be, right? So Red Hat, maybe it's not really a one-off. Maybe that can be replicated. And companies like Mongo, like I said, Elastic and Confluent demonstrated that. And what I found really interesting back then was the human aspect of open source. You know, open source, it's not just about code. It's about people. It's about setting expectations with a community. It's about creating a highway that allows the organizations or the maintainers to give back to the community, but also listen to the community, Mm -hmm. create a highway that allows the community to be successful within the open source project. And this human aspect of open source, it's so important because then it becomes a matter of expectations, right? As long as the expectations are, are set between the maintainers and the community, like in life, like with friends or with a significant other, like the human aspect is there, then as long as those ex- expectations are met, everything goes well. And when those expectations start to break, to break down, because now we're going to be closing source something that we always said is going to be open source, for example, or we're not going to be accepting contributions because that does not match our strategic vision, blah, blah, blah. That's when the open source project becomes less open. And open source almost becomes like a marketing checkbox. We're open source because, I mean, you can see the code, but not open source intended as there is a two-way relationship here between us and the community. That's a very careful line to walk. Are there times that I've talked to developer representatives, you know, from all different types of companies that have said, yeah, there was this time that we made a decision and we really pissed off our core contributors and we lost some of them. And I think that's a that's a thing that is terrifying 
in this model. But sometimes, you know, the community isn't aligned to what, like, it's just you do have a business mandate. You know, you need to pay some people. You need to make some money. It's not always aligned there. You know, what what things have you had to do to stay aligned with the community, keep that ethos, but also make choices that, you know, sometimes you need to say no. And that's fine. As long as the no happens within a context of integrity and honesty. I don't. Well, how, what is that? You know, what, how do you make a, a high integrity no? I believe that even the you know open source users or open source contributors and maintainers, everybody in the open source space, really understands that open source may be free to use, but it's not free to build, right? So that's an important consideration to be made. But for example, once something it's open source, taking it back and away from the community which is what many companies have done in the past, because now they realize they open source something they shouldn't really have open sourced. Well, that's a big no in my book because that breaks the expectations that you know what's open source, it's already open source and kind of uh, destroys that honesty and that relationship between the maintainers and the contributors. Really, it's about, it's about being plain honest and uh, or perhaps involving them into the decision. Hey guys, in order to be able to continue the project, we were thinking of doing X, Y, Z. What do you think? What's the best way of doing this? And try to engage with the community. If the decisions are being made in one room without those inputs, without the inputs of the stakeholders of all of these people that are making the project successful in the first place, well, that's a unilateral decision. And therefore, the community has all the rights to be upset about it. How do you weight the contributions of all the stakeholders? Like, you know, some people, some people's opinion needs to rise to the top more than, than some other people. What's the system or heuristic you use to value inputs and, and add weight to them? It's... Um Every contribution has to be evaluated from different perspectives. One, it's you know the technical integrity of the actual contribution. One, it's the strategic vision of the project, and if the contribution matches that vision. And really, the having a highway between the maintainers and the contributors really should fix most of these problems. Because assuming that, for example, somebody wants to contribute something that doesn't necessarily match the vision or the technical aspects of the project, uh, a conversation should start and, you know, um, a fix should follow up to that initial contribution in order to bring that specific PR, for example, up, up to the standards that the project expects, right? Um, and I also believe that open source maintainers should not accept contributions out of the blue, just like that. They should first open up an issue, discuss if that's even something that the project and the community would consider. And then yeah. only then start to the contributions. Because otherwise, yes, you end up in this situation where people spend lots of time creating code and the code is never merged. And then this creates friction. Good so as a, as a rule of thumb, it's always better to always discuss, right? And again, this is not something that's unique to open source software. This is really our human relationships. You know, We don't make decisions or we don't just put people in front of a fact we try to conversate with them and we make a decision together and then we move forward. And somebody who's responsible and accountable to move that forward. Yeah, yeah. How do you actually facilitate 
those conversations. I mean, this becomes really like a, a management and leadership discussion. You know, how do you facilitate great conversations with, I mean, you, what do you have? The thousands of stakeholders, you know, I mean, it could consume easily all your time. Like how do you manage the, the actual process of that so that it doesn't completely consume you? You know, it, it, it sounds terrifying. You know, you could take feedback forever and never do any work. The sole purpose of an open source project, it's to listen listen to the community, listen to what they have, and provide an, an avenue for them, a forum for them to be able to express themselves. And every time somebody opens up an issue or writes a comment, says something in the chat, you know, we have an open source chat, I really don't think it's that of a distraction. I mean, the sole purpose why I'm doing what I'm doing is for people to download our work, our you know software, run it, and then being able to express a feedback. Really, in, in open source, 50%, if not more, should be spent in listening to every single user and understanding if there is a pattern, you know, and and uh, and, and if it becomes too noisy, then perhaps what's, what's missing, it's uh, a rule set that would allow people to contribute and communicate more efficiently or in a more precise way, right? So perhaps the problem is in what is the process and the highway that the, the contributors are choosing to adopt to express their feelings or feedback or their improvements to you, right? So, I mean, it's a, it's a never ending job, right? So how can we listen to everybody in an efficient mm -hmm. manner, but never regretting for anybody writing to us or communicating to us? Right, right. Yeah. And it, I guess as the leader, you know, you really have to think about that efficiency factor you know, and, and how everybody, you know, sort of is spending their time being good listeners, at least, at least to be efficient listeners. You know, like you said, like it, it could consume all of the resources of the company listening forever. So, you know, there's a line between listening and then, you know, action. And it sounds like you designed a good, good process around that. Was that homegrown or did you, did you take a lot of lessons from the, the community or the, you know, the open source industry at large? You know, there are, good leaders in the open source space that I believe do the right thing. And then also, you know, building an organization that grows from the original founders to over a hundred people. We're still small, right? But in in those in that range from zero to a hundred, many things are happening, you know, over the years. And there is no way of building any organization without being able to listen, without being able to collect feedback in an efficient manner and then act upon it. So really if we take a step back Maintaining an open source project and maintaining a healthy community is not any different than maintaining a healthy organization or not any different than maintaining healthy friendships. I mean, the human aspect, it's the, uh, it's really the element here that all of these different activities have in common, right? And so somebody who's bad to listen in real life, I would assume it would be pretty bad. He would be a bad listener even in a community, right? So it's really about improving our skills our own personal skills. What have you done? Uh, what is your personal path to, you know, improve your listening and leadership skills that way? So the biggest lesson for me was as the company grew was to give trust. And so when you give trust, then you also have to listen because you have to listen what they, what everybody has to say. And, and the reason why we have to release control and give trust it's because we don't scale if we, if we are the bottleneck for every decision. Mm 
So in a in an organization, eventually you really have when you're starting a company and you're starting a product, you're in charge of everything. And it's very hard because of human nature to release something that you have. Because, you know, it's a, it's a, an instinct. Like if you're in a jungle, the more rocks and sticks you have, the better. And if somebody asks you for a stick for a rock, well, you don't want to give it to them. Like it's kind of a natural instinct. We don't, humans are not very good at releasing. And so we really have to make a conscious effort and releasing that power and giving trust so we can avoid being the bottleneck. And now we can listen what other people have to say. And there is always a balance, of, of course. You know, I'm also not a big fan of, uh, you know, having too many chefs in the room. Because consensus doesn't scale either. So we cannot be possibly having, you know, everybody on board, but we have to listen to everybody. And after we have listened to everybody, we can make a decision of going on a different path or not. But giving the trust, listening to people while building the organization really helped me and improved me as an individual, not just in the open source community, but in my own life, I would say. Absolutely. Absolutely. Great feedback. Yeah, I, I agree. That's that's critically important. Well, so tell the audience at least, you know, about Kong, uh, maybe how to get involved. We have a lot of audience members who are open source contributors and, and also a lot of people here who might be you know, your clients. So, uh, you know, please just give us uh, you know, information about the product and, and how to get involved and things that you want the audience to know before we wrap up. Yeah, it's a very simple product. Um, if you have an API, either an API that other teams within the organization have to use or APIs that you want other people to adopt and start consuming, well, you have to secure those APIs. You have to protect them. You have to monitor them. You have to version them. You have to document them. You have to do all sorts of things that are far away from the actual business logic of the API itself. So our mission is developers, Focus on building the actual business logic and let Kong do the rest so that we do not waste time implementing and reinventing the wheel when it comes to connecting, securing, and extending those APIs. And so Kong as a platform can work um, in a north-south capacity, so as a traditional API gateway, or can work on an east-west capacity as well, so microservices and service mesh. And we're working from small individual developers to large top Fortune 50 organization, we help them connecting, securing, protecting, and making their software, their architectures viable in order to, at the end of the day, deliver business value, right? We are building APIs. We're choosing different architectures. We are doing all the things that we're doing because there is a driver to that. And the driver, it's always the business, right? So how can we, for example, support more world regions? How can we connect with more partners? How can we support a different mobile apps? How can we scale our team? And usually the answer to those questions is, okay, we have to change our software with microservices or use APIs or do X, Y, Z. So how can Kong help technically connect all of that from a technical standpoint? But at the end of the day, how can Kong help create business value? to what is the original driver to that transformation. Well said. <laughs> I'll let everybody else chime in after that. So Marco, thank you. You know, Thanks for sharing your story and, uh, and your insights. Really good to have you on. Thank you very much, Ledge. Thanks for listening to the Frontier Podcast produced by Gun.io. We're the only freelancing platform where engineers actually go to hire other engineers. If you enjoyed the show and want to learn more about how to hire or freelance with us, Head over to gun.io slash podcast to get in touch and we'll pay for your first 10 hours with a kick-ass engineer.
Thanks for listening to the Frontier Podcast, produced by Gun.io. We're the only freelancing platform where engineers actually go to hire other engineers. If you want to learn more about how to hire or freelance with us, head over to Gun.io and get in touch. Let us know you heard the podcast and we'll pay for your first 10 hours with a kick-ass engineer.